we're looking through the Bible at some of the great metaphors or the themes. I called them last week the elements that God has planted in this world that acts as signs. These are concrete, visible things, part of nature, you might say, forces of nature that God has created. And in those things, um, God reveals things about himself that we otherwise could not know, not even in a theology class, or if we did, it is because nature taught us these things. The psalmist says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Day after day, it pours forth its speech. It says it speaks without saying a word. Nature or creation speaks without saying a word a word, and yet its message goes out through all the earth. So powerful is that message that the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 1 that creation itself is evidence, not that God exists, it is evidence of God's divine qualities. So what Paul is saying is creation is so loud in its speaking. If we will look at it and study it, it will teach us things about the nature of God. Paul says these things are so ineffable that one is left without an excuse. So like me, if you've ever looked at creation and thought to yourself... This must be proof that God exists. You've missed the point. Creation exists, says the psalmist and St. Paul, not simply to prove that God exists, but to prove his character and his divine qualities. There are things in creation that speak to the character of God so that when we look at those things, they reveal invisible realities. Does that make sense? Are you there? All the theologians are, yeah, all right. Yeah, I'm into this. Rachel, like, what? what's this got to do with anything? So we started last week talking about some of those invisible things like wind and air and how that signifies the power of the Holy Spirit blowing across the church and across the world. Today I want to talk about fire. Our God is a consuming fire. I want to say things today that are the minority report, things that you will write about and send to me. So it's remember, eric.crisp <laughs> at collegewest.com. Have a good week, brother. I want to say things that are unpopular, especially uh, if you're an evangelical, especially if you're born after 1960, um, especially if you were raised in the West. Things about God that you think I'm going to overstate. And your tendency will be to hear these things and to try and temper them with other things that you know. Your tendency will be to hear these things and to say, well, let's find the happy middle. And if you do that, you will miss the edges on both. So just give me a shot, all right? And then 
we'll settle it by going into communion. <laughs> wow. A couple weeks ago, we were up in Michigan. We were taking our grandson. He's four years old through a zoo, the local zoo there near Grand Rapids. It's not a huge zoo, but they do have some of the pretty cool animals. He got to ride a train. He got to ride a camel. He got to stand under a waterfall, got to get underneath and look around at some of the mongoose. So it's just a real interactive experience for him. And I could not wait to get him over to the African part of the zoo where they have the big cats. I don't know about you, but these things, they are awesome. You look and there's a mountain lion and there's this little fake artificial mountainous range and he's down here and literally people in about three or four steps, he just bounds up those mountains. He lays down and he looks at the humans who are looking through the glass at him. There was a tiger who was just sort of prowling around up at the top of this range and he come all the way down and stood next to the glass and his head is about that big around. There were lions that were laying out in the field and the mane on these things is this big around. And boy, as you stand and you look through the glass, you look at the cages at these animals, it is, you are just drawn to this kind of fierce power and this mobility, this unpredictability. There was a bear that was just like come up to my waist, all hunched over. He was so heavy that he was just sort of lumbers when he walks. And then when he got over to the glass, he suddenly stood up on his hind legs to get an apple that they'd stuck in the fence so he can feed himself. And when he went up, his mouth was over my head. And without thinking, you go from leaning on the glass to, whoa, whoa. So I'm saying to Magnix, hey, 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 go over there and get by the glass. I'm gonna take a picture of you with the tiger. He's down, his head's bigger than you are, but go. And you know, I'm not going over there. Oh, come on, don't be a wuss, get over there. He's not gonna go. But people, I had forgotten the kind of power and the ferocity, the instincts, the mobility, the quickness that is in these animals. You just get this new appreciation for what God has created. And I might just be speaking to guys right now, but as I was doing this, two thoughts kept running through my head. One of them was, what would happen if somebody picked me up and put me over the glass and I was in there with that thing? And you start looking at them thinking, would I have a chance? Could I scare them? If I was really mad, could I take them? And he's looking at me and he ain't thinking that at all. Cause he knows if I got on the other side of that glass, he could take me pretty easily, eat me and not even remember it. But as long as I am on this side of the glass, I feel this artificial safety. 
from that wild power. I respect it. I'm drawn to it, but I sure don't want to be on the other side of it. I don't want to be alone with him. The other thing going through my mind is what would happen if we could get him out of that glass and put him back in the wild? Would he have a chance? Or have we tamed the wild right out of them? Years ago, I read a story about circus bears that they were retiring. And they said they didn't know what to do with the bears. Of course, if you're from Chicago, you don't know what to do with the bears. But they said that they had taken them out of the wild and they had domesticated them to perform in the circus. But now that the bears were too old to perform and too tame to go back into the wild, they didn't know what to do with them. And I wondered if we in the church have not done the same thing with our God especially in the evangelical church. I wonder if we have so domesticated God and we've been with him so long and he has performed just like he should in our worship, in our prayers, in our liturgies. I mean, he never gets out from behind the glass I wonder if our God church is getting too old to perform, but he's too tame to go back into the wild where the other gods are. I wonder if he'd have a chance out there. And here is where you'll think I'm overstating the case about the ferociousness of our God. You say... He is a shepherd. I say he carries a rod and a staff. You say he is the lamb that was slain. I say he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. You say he is the one who touches sinful women at his feet. I say he is the one who kills Ananias and Sapphira for lying about their tithes. This one into whose face we long to look, says John in Revelation chapter 1, has eyes like fire and a voice like a mighty waterfall. And when I see him, I went down on my face as though dead. And I wonder if we have in the church domesticated God a little too much so he performs in predictable patterns. So I was wrestling with this on my way out of the zoo. Because that's what you do. You, you wrestle with the nature of God coming out of a zoo. And I could not find a metaphor until I stumbled upon one a couple weeks ago, which I will use this morning. Our God is a fire on a mountain. He is fearsome and awesome and he can spread uncontrollably and yet he is warm 
and inviting. You can make a home around him. We love him. We dread him. He calms our fears. He is the object of our fears. He is awesome. He is terrifying. And we must never resolve this tension in the nature of our God. Pause. Because I can see some of you, there's smoke. Pause. Breathe. It was in the ancient days, mountains were magnificent regions. Just by their appearance, they were high above all of the other landscape. And so there's more than 500 references to mountains in the biblical story. It's they're, they're, they're there all the time, and you don't even see them because you're looking for something else. Yeah, 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 I don't care where it happened, what happened, but what happened happened on mountains, and there's a significant reason for this. It was on a mountain that... Abraham took his son Isaac up to sacrifice the boy. Read Genesis 22 again, and the image there is visceral. It says the son is carrying the wood, but the father is carrying the fire. So we have an image of a father and a son climbing the mount of sacrifice. The son has the wood. The father has the fire. They're ready to sacrifice the son to a God they have never seen on a mountain. It was in a mountain that Balaam prophesied. It was in a mountain that Elisha came out and looked to the ridges and saw the chariots of God surrounding and said to the servant, look, the ones who are for us are greater than the ones who are against us. It was in a mountain that David ran to hide from Saul. It was on a mountain that Elijah hid in a cave in Horeb and God found him. These high places that are out of the way, distant and remote, high above all other land. God meets his people in a mountain. And there's a reason for this because the mountains in those days are literally littered with temples, shrines, and altars to other gods. Now, this is rather enlightening because it meant that not only Christians, but every religion held up the mountains as the places where the heavens touched the earth. And they built temples there, and they built altars there. The ancient Near Eastern texts are littered with references to the gods fighting in the mountains. There's one particular story of the god Baal, who is the god of the weather, the storms, and all of that, who is in a war against the god named Yam, who is the god of the sea, the sea monster. And Baal in this story comes out with two clubs. One is thunder and one is lightning. And he wages war against the sea monster god and destroys him. In another text, the gods come out of the mountains with wind, with rain, 
and with fire. So you start to see a pattern in this ancient mythology. The gods are invisible, but they have control of the supernatural forces. There is not one God, there are many. And they have human characteristics, especially human egos. That means they're fighting all the time and they're using supernatural power, wind, rain, fire, lightning, thunder, as their spears to fight off the other gods. Now this seems to you like it's way out there and who on earth would believe this? But you gotta remember that back in that day, Everybody believed this. This was how people made sense of the world. So now that you know this, that there were in the mountains all of these shrines and temples, and wait for it, that pre-existed Israel. They were there long before Israel was formed. It becomes even more powerful that when God descends on a mountain in fire, he is barging in to the territory that is possessed by other gods. Mm. This is not just about God's relationship with humans. This is about God's relationship with other gods. And he comes down in the form of fire on their mountains in their house and destroys the altars. I told you this was unpopular. There is no story like Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah the prophet goes up to Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal are there and they have a contest and Elijah says to the prophets, you go ahead and build the altars. And so they gather the wood, they build the altars and then they step back and Elijah says to the prophets, go ahead and call on your gods and tell your gods to light fire to the altar. Well, they start chanting and singing and nothing happens. And Elijah starts to mock them. He starts saying, cry louder. Maybe they're asleep. In the Living Bible, he says, maybe your God is on the toilet. It's pretty visceral. But he says, cry. Wake him up. Maybe your God will respond. They cry, they cut themselves, and nothing happens. Then Elijah says to the servants, now cover the altar with water. And they pour water on the fire so it would never ignite. The water goes down into the trenches. Elijah steps back. He calls on the name of Yahweh on Mount Carmel at their own shrine. And he says, Yahweh, if you hear these people, if you hear me, Prove to them that you are almighty. And the word says, fire from heaven. Bam! It came down. It incinerated the altar. Not just the sacrifice. The whole altar. 
It electrified the ground so that the priests who were around it were killed. It licked up the water that was in the trenches. (laughs) Wow! Tell that in Sunday school. Do you start to see the image? God comes to territory owned. He comes to the house of the gods and declares himself sovereign. I love him, but he terrifies me. He's wild. He's unpredictable. He's unsafe. (laughs) I don't feel safe around God. Good. He's good. His nature is good. But he is not tame. He is kind. But he is discerning. The other reason God comes down to mountains, as I said, was to form a people. He was trying to prove not only to other gods who he was. He was that power to whom all of the gods answered. He was also a God of a covenant with his people. And when God made covenants... He was particular about the kind of God we believe in. One of those scenes is in Exodus chapter 3. The other is in Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 3, God comes down on the mountain in the form of a burning bush. Moses is hard at work. Today you'd say he was in the office, he was running the meeting, he was on the floor doing his job, and he looked over and there was a bush suddenly caught on fire. What intrigued him was not that the bush was on fire, other bushes would suddenly ignite because the weather was dry and hot. What intrigued him was that the fire did not consume the bush. So he wondered what kind of fire burns without destroying. I will go over and look, he says, and so he does. And he hears a voice coming out of the fire. It says, Moses, Moses. an ancient Semitic way of speaking, they tell me, in words of fondness. Whenever they repeated your name, it was a word of love or affection. Moses is drawn to a voice coming from a fire that is fond of him. It knows him. Now watch the next thing the voice says. Don't come any closer and take off your shoes. This is holy ground. 
Now you're asking yourself, what kind of fire is fond of me, loves me, summons me, and the moment I move, he says, don't come any closer. That ought to rattle you, church. God has not spoken in 400 years. And the first thing he says is, don't come any closer. It ain't, oh, I've missed you. It rattles you, and it should. Then this voice speaks from the fire to Moses, and the voice says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will be with you. Moses says, who are you? What are you? And the voice says, my name is I am. I am that I am. And theologians today call that the sacred tetragrammaton, the unutterable four consonants. Here is my name. You cannot utter it. And now you're asking yourself, what kind of fire says, I will be with you, and here is my name, by the way, you can't say it. And you see this tension. Can you see it? Is it just me? Can you feel it, church? Are you guys awake? Can you feel the tension? How is it that God can be so familiar that he gives me his name and a moment later say, don't come any closer and don't say my name? And you start to wonder if we in the church have not favored one side of this equation more than we have favored the other. That's my point. Are you still there? In Exodus 19, when God comes down on the mountain in the form of fire, he calls Moses to come up the mountain. And when Moses is climbing the mountain, he looks to the top and there is thunder and lightning that is happening in the skies. And if you remember what mountains are, God is summoning Moses to go up into the very weapons of the gods into the heart of pagan culture and meet him there. At the top, God says to Moses, tell the Israelites, do not come any closer. Tell them not, wait for it, do not force your way through. Moses says, Yahweh, how can we? You have put limits around the mountains. Yahweh says, go get your brother Aaron. Bring him with you up the mountain, but do not bring the priests. Tell the priests if they do not consecrate themselves. And if the priests, wait for it, here it is again. If the priests force their way through, the Lord God will break out against them. It's a terrifying image, and yet it's an inviting image. God is pulling his people up to himself all the while he fences them off 
by his greatness and his majesty. And there is no good way to resolve this. You still there? I think, as I said, we have favored the side of domesticating God. I think that we have made a God who is a kinder, gentler God, a God of our churches who is more tolerant. He is a God of every view and no view all at once. He is all grace, and so no grace is necessary. The domesticated God is a God of love without discrimination, mercy without law, power without intimidation, knowledge without convictions, truth without an attitude. Shoot, he may even be a she. Like a mother whose children have grown up and gone off to work. The evangelical God today sits at home, mostly in church buildings, and waits for his kids to call him Sunday morning and say nice things. They're older now. They have lives of their own. He must no longer raise them. Shoot, they're raising him. When we speak of Jesus becoming more like Jesus, Scott McKnight says, I think the opposite is true. We've actually made Jesus more like us. And the more like us he becomes, the more like him we seem. David Wells said, it's a defining mark of our time that God has become weightless. He says, I don't mean that God is ethereal. I mean that God, wait for it, God weighs so inconsequentially upon the world as to not be noticeable. He has lost his saliency. It isn't that God doesn't exist. It's that he does exist, but he is unimportant. Less interesting than Netflix less inspiring than social media. You can feel it, can't you? Now you're saying, Steve, you got to do something to rescue this sermon. We're going into communion here. I'm coming. Hang on. Let me pause, and then I'll get there. What this means to me, church is that there is a joy, there is a levity in following Yahweh, but there is a seriousness. I think this means perhaps there should be a little more humility in our posture, a little more suspension in our quick judgments, maybe more reverence in our language. Maybe there should be more substance and theology in our worship. Maybe there should be a little more obedience in our practices. A little more zeal. 
in our evangelism. Maybe there should be more integrity in our relationship, more holiness in our desires because the God we worship is a consuming fire. Here's the other thing. Everything God requires from you, God provides. The standards have never changed but the resources have. Our God is a consuming fire, but our Christ is the sacrificial lamb. Our God supplies all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. He who began this good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the end of time. Faithful is he who has called you. He will do it. Whatever God requires, God provides. There is the difference. Our God is still on the mountain. The standards are still high and far above us. But Christ himself has come up the mountain with us and he has changed the nature of the game. So all the while, this means when I gather, any old thing won't do. It also means when I gather in the name of Jesus Christ, he makes my worship, flawed as it may be, pure and spotless in the eyes of God. That is a powerful advantage that no other religion puts forth. All religions have standards. None of them but ours has provisions equal to the standard. Church, say amen. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that God isn't as terrifying as you thought. He's all the more terrifying than you thought. But Jesus is better than you thought. And he is making you now into the image of his son. Say amen.